Guys, we are going to dive right into the Word tonight. Sound good? If you would open your Bibles up to Jonah, that would be much appreciated. If you don't know where Jonah is, that's okay. Use the table of contents in the front of your Bible. There's literally no shame in that. Jonah is kind of tucked away uh, at the end of the Old Testament. Um, And this is what we need to know about Jonah before we even get to the title page. This is what we need to know about the book of Jonah. This is a real story. Jonah is a prophet, right? He is in amongst the other prophets at the end of the Old Testament. But this one takes a little different twist, right? This prophet is not really the normal rhythm of the books of the prophets. Instead of a prophet kind of speaking to us, right? Like God's mouthpiece speaking to us, we're actually kind of let into the prophet's story. We're kind of on the outside looking into Jonah's life. And in rare form, this story is actually pretty satirical. It's actually kind of funny. There's a lot of like ironic things that happen that you wouldn't expect. And this book is weird. It's a book about a prophet of God running away from God. And it ends in the weirdest way. If I'm not mistaken, a bunch of you freshman girls are doing a study through this, right? Yeah, okay, so there's a lot of experts here. So if we open the book of Jonah tonight and we close it and you're like, I have no idea what just happened, just find a random freshman girl in here and she will probably be able to explain everything to you super, super well. Ultimately, guys, this is what you need to know. This book is a book about God. And more specifically, it's a book about God and his great mercy, That's the word of the night, God's great mercy. As we've journeyed through the Old Testament, you might have like all these different ideas of God, right? He's wise. Like he he has big plans for the world and his glory. He's powerful. He's good. But we end this journey through the Old Testament with Jonah. And the big idea of Jonah is this. God loves to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. Mercy. It's the decision made not to punish someone even if they deserve it. Right? Like we're not, this isn't like a like a new thing to us. We understand what mercy is. It's a word that warms and welcomes our hearts. It draws us in. It makes us feel like we belong. A word that stretches anywhere from like a prisoner of war, like on their knees, like begging, like to their enemies, like, please have mercy, like, don't kill me, all the way to, like, me for the thousandth time last night, leaving the oven on, and God, yet again, not letting me burn my house down. It's funny, for now. Also, I totally lost my spot in my Bible, if you couldn't tell. What page is Jonah on, guys? A thousand? 821. Oh, found it. Thanks, man. We have the same Bible. Okay, good. Jonah is about a God who loves to show mercy. Ephesians 2. God is what? Rich in mercy. He has storehouses full. He never runs out. Lamentations 3.23 says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Forever. We all know what it is, but tonight, guys, we need to see deeper. We need to go one layer deeper and see the very heart of God. There, mercy is born. It flows freely. 
because this God loves to show mercy. As Charles Spurgeon, the old prince of preachers, says, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. This is what we're going to see tonight as we open the book of Jonah. Three things. Three things that God's mercy might make us uncomfortable God's mercy might lead, up, lead to straight up revival and God's mercy might be exactly what you and I need tonight. So the first thing we're gonna see is God's mercy might just make us uncomfortable. Read with me in Jonah 1. I'm just gonna read the first three verses. We're gonna get a kind of a, a ground set, a table set for diving into this story. It says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. We hear get up and go. And Jonah gets up and he goes in the complete other direction. Jonah's fleeing God, the first thing that we see, his fleeing God, is proof to me that he loved his ministry more than he loved his God. What do I mean? Okay, well, let's start with what we know about Jonah. Okay, he's a prophet. We already said that. We know from 2 Kings chapter 14, he's actually like in the ear of the current king who's kind of a sketchy dude but he really enjoyed Jonah's advice. He liked keeping Jonah around. We don't really know much about Jonah's character, but we don't really like the company that he keeps. But he was successful. Jonah had it made, an impressive ministry, a good life, a good name built for himself. And so when God throws a wrench into Jonah's plans here and tells him to go to this place called Nineveh, he absolutely loses it, right? He runs away as far as he can. Why? Well, we don't really know yet. But we do know why God wanted this, right? Why he called him to this evil land. He had a great mission for Jonah. He had a great purpose. He wanted to put his great mercy on display to an evil people. He wanted to warn them of impending doom and destruction. And for whatever reason, Jonah sees it best to run. Maybe because the people of Nineveh were notorious for being cruel and murderous, for not just taking prisoners and killing them, but doing it in ways that were inhumane and not just doing that, but bragging about it and wanting the whole world to know just how serious they were about stomping out their enemies. These people had gone to war with Jonah's people. They were their enemies. It was likely that maybe Jonah knew people who had been killed. Maybe he had friends or family who had been killed by Ninevites, Assyrians, Whatever Jonah was thinking, he did not like this call and he got out of town. But read between the lines with me. This is important. We'll get to the evil city in Nineveh, but Jonah first. Was God being cruel or unreasonable to Jonah? Was he sending him to a certain death? It sounds scary. Or was he being merciful to his prophet? Why would God ruin a good thing that he had going here? Here's why. Because God is more concerned with the heart of humans 
than their ministry. Or to put it another way, God is more concerned with the heart of humans than their success. Or to put it another way, God is more concerned with the heart of humans than he is their comfort. Nineveh needed warning, absolutely, but we cannot ignore what God was doing first to his very own prophet. He was warning him that the slow, slow sedative of comfort was growing into a God of its own. A warning that Jonah maybe actually lost his first love, who he did all these amazing things in the name of God, but actually grew cold in his affection for this God. He cared more about his ministry than he cared about his God, and he proved this when the will of God became second to the will of his own flesh. That when God's will actually came up front, Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. Friends, when, when comfort trumps calling, we have chosen comfort over our God. Let me say it again. When comfort trumps, trumps calling, we have chosen comfort over God. We all have those friends. It's not us. It's nobody in this room. But we all have those friends who literally need to be shaken awake in the morning. Right? Like they, no alarm will do. Doesn't matter how urgent they have something in the morning or how late they get something. They literally need shaken. Don't look around. Stop looking at your friend. But those people, they need shaken out of their slumber. There was a guy in college when I was in college. My goodness. He, he would sleep forever. And one day, we had concessions the next morning. We had to get to Kinnick Stadium and serve. We had to go to work. This was important. This mattered to us. And this kid was supposed to come with us. And he was not waking up to any of his alarms. We were yelling. He was not waking up. I'm not making this up. There was somebody doing construction in our house with a literal jackhammer on concrete two feet outside of his door. And he would, it's like a cartoon. He would not wake up. Mercy might just look like grabbing somebody by the shoulders and shaking them until they wake up. Now, we just left that guy sleeping. But if we were actually merciful, maybe that's what we should have done. We would rather stay, this is, this is tough, but sometimes I think we would rather stay safe, stay warm, stay comfy, than answer God's call of adventure in our lives. I feel that all the time. I feel that every single time I sit down in a coffee shop. And sometimes God's mercy looks like violently shaking us out of this growing numbness, this sedative that we keep taking. Guys, tonight, could God's mercy be pushing against our comfort zones? This has been on my mind all week personally. And, and, if, and if this whole first point, as we're studying God's amazing mercy, if this whole thing about being, if this doesn't apply to you, that's okay. Because this has absolutely ruined me this week. I can't stop thinking about this. I'm terrified of this mercy. I like what I do. I like where I live. I'm comfortable. I like this job. What if God in mercy calls me out? What if he has different plans for me? It's a touchy question, I know, but I want it to actually ultimately comfort all of us tonight. Like that fear of like, oh, I don't really want to be called to go to Nineveh like Jonah. I don't want to do that thing that's on my mind. Or I don't want to do it. I want us to be comforted tonight. We can find comfort in this fact that God is not afraid to tell his children what's best for them. 
God is not afraid to tell his children, to discipline his children, to get them to do his good and perfect will. Very practically, friends, we need to be people of his word. Like we need to read his Bible. It's crazy, guys. It's so simple. But here is where God will disagree with you. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you think the Bible's like a roadmap where we go and like kind of just take what we want and like find kind of like, where is God like me? Where does he make me feel good? No, God's very different than you. And he's very, very different than me. He is far wiser than us. And he will push against us. And we, every single day, need to get into this word and train ourselves to be trained by God. Get in the word. Read our Bibles and let him push against our comfort zones. Because when the toothpaste is squeezed, we see what comes out, right? Tonight, is it going to be fear? Is it going to be sin? Is it going to be obedience? I do not know. That is between you and God. But God's mercy is not a lighthearted thing that just helps us fall asleep and feel good at night. God's mercy is actually kind enough, nice enough to make us uncomfortable, to do what's best. So more than us loving what God has given to us, we are to love God. More than us loving what we even do for God, we are to love this God. And I don't know tonight, by the end of all this, I don't know if God's gonna call you overseas I don't know if he's going to call you to be a church plan. I don't know if he's going to call you across the room to talk to the person who's different than you. But I do know this, that he is calling you to love him first. Before you make any action outward, you are to receive his love. Your first love. The joy of your salvation. This is his true and severe mercy. Here we see Jonah get a taste of it and reject it. And the story is ready to take off. Okay, so this is what happens in the rest of Jonah 1 and 2. You've probably heard children's stories about this. But Jonah runs away. He gets on a boat and he's gone. And he's on a boat heading in the complete opposite direction, heading west when God calls him east, on this crazy journey towards comfort. And God's mercy takes new form. He sends a storm, thunder, lightning, crashing waves, all of it. To the point where the sailors, these professional sailors who've been doing this, they think they're about to die. And they're asking, there is something divine going here. Whose fault is this? And Jonah, after waking up from his nap in all of his glorious apathy, says, yeah, it's me. I know that God's chasing me down. You should just throw me overboard and kill me and save yourselves. Which sounds kind of cool, like, oh, that's so kind of Jonah. No, no, no. Jonah would rather die than obey his God in this moment. He knows that if he's dead on the bottom of this sea, then he will not have to go to Nineveh. And so they throw him overboard. They ironically repent of their sins, these pagan sailors who know nothing of this God, end up becoming God worshipers, God fearing men, and throw God's prophet, the rebel, overboard. And as he's floating down, he gets swallowed up by a fish or a sea monster or a whale. I don't know. But something, some kind of watery tomb, as I've heard it described, that preserves Jonah's life and keeps his mission and his purpose going strong. And while he's in the fish, 
while he is conscious enough to get thoughts together, got to be confused as ever. I mean, I know I would be, but he utters these words like this kind of repentance. He never says he's sorry to God. He never really has like this emotional lovey-dovey breakthrough, like, God, I am so sorry. But he says he'll obey. He recognizes that his fleeing from God was the stupidest thing he's ever done. He recognizes the God who he swears to know so much about. Oh yeah, I forgot that he's everywhere. I forgot that he's all powerful. Yeah, God, I, I forgot. He recognizes this. He makes it back to land and he dutifully goes on with what was charged to him. This is Jonah 3. This is where the story gets absolutely nuts. Like fish eating somebody? That's not, no, this is nuts. Get ready. I'm going to read Jonah 3. It's going to be on the screen. And it says this. The Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk, about the size of Chicago. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, okay, here's a sermon. You guys ready for it? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. (laughs) Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe. He put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree to Nineveh. It keeps going. He says, by order of the king and his nobles. Like this is a law. No person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. Nobody's eaten. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Like this disaster might not happen. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them and he did not do it. Okay, Jonah made it. He made it from comfort through the storm to the fish to the bottom of the sea and now he's made it to the great city and he drops an absolute banger of a sermon. No, maybe the worst sermon of all time. Literally, Five words in the original language was his whole sermon. And so what we see here is that bad attitude plus a bad sermon plus a bad audience equals revival. The second thing we see tonight is that God's mercy might actually lead to straight up revival. Maybe he needs to shake us out of our comfort zone. But the second thing is that God's mercy might lead to straight up revival. Revival? Really? Yes, really. Even the faintest proclamation of God's mercy is good news to those who need it. It's not good advice. It's not self-help. It's actual power. The type of power that turns wicked sinners into saints like a light switch. You see, the greatest display of God's power, guys, according to this, is actually his message of mercy. His greatest power is delivered in great mercy. Who is this God? Well, I think the Ninevites maybe heard stories, right? They, they knew the God of their opponents, but they were never afraid of their opponent's armies, were they? 
They were never afraid to go fight with Israel. But the moment that they were threatened with their God, not their armies, but their God, when the moment that they thought maybe he would step on the scene, repentance. Repentance is a really churchy word, but this is what it means, to change your mind. To literally, if you're going this way, turn 180 degrees and go this way. To change the way you think. Sorry, the mic's all messed up because ever since I shaved my head, nothing really fits my head anymore, so forgive me on that. Um, anyway, <laughs> these people didn't know a lot. They weren't the smartest people. They didn't know one thing. They disagreed with this powerful God, and they had to do something about it, and the only thing that they could do is turn and plead for mercy, and mercy they received. Why? Because God loves to show mercy. So much so that even a stuttering proclamation of who he is contains enough power to change entire cities. You know who's like a modern day prophet? Smokey the bear. Remember that guy? Look, all the PSAs. Kind of awkward bears like threatening you, but like in a kind teddy bear type of way. Like, do you put out your fires? Why? What's he on to here? He knew the nature of fire. He knew that even a small flame hit with the right breeze can become life-altering power. In the same way, the small, weak, untrained word of God's people can light up an entire city. God has given you, guys, the person in your seat, God has given you a fire, a message, and he wants to show off his great power through the tenderest of mercies. What could God do with what he has given you? What could God do with, he, with what he has given you? I'm telling you, if God's angry, rebellious prophet can see this happen, you and I can too. God's mercy might first need to shake us out of our comfort zone. Absolutely. But he wants to do this so that he can preach through you this severe mercy. Romans 1 said that this message This good news is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. In 1 Timothy, it says that God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of this truth. And so it would seem, by his mercy, he is inviting us into the same ministry of mercy with him. I've been absolutely amped up for tonight. Because this sermon doesn't have to be much better than Jonah's to see something crazy happen. My big idea that God loves to show mercy, as far as I'm concerned, that's all it takes to see whole cities of sinners flipped on its head. And so I'm pumped because if this is terrible, if everything sounded bad tonight, if that experiment of announcements was an absolute joke, who cares? If I give these five words, God loves to show mercy, and you hear that, and the world hears that, only God knows what could happen. What would it be like to be Jonah? Amidst all of your doubts, your bad attitude, your sin, and God saves an entire city of notorious sinners and blows away your wildest imagination, you can decide to go share the gospel tonight. You said, we're going downtown after this. Come on. No after party. We're going downtown. We're going to share the gospel with some friends. Next thing you know, next week, you're calling me. Ryan, we can't meet at the church anymore. Why? Because everybody repented. Because everybody wants in on this. 
Because we said the word Jesus, and next you know, people are flooding towards us. Because for some reason, we have people actually loving Jesus with us. We have to go to Carver. We have to go to Kinnick. I don't know. Who knows what could happen? I think we would stop and say, yes, God, you have done great things like we sang about. Our worship would ignite. Our communities would overflow in love. Our fights against sin would be strengthened. Our church would burst at the seams. And finally, the joy and peace that we've always wanted would be here. Right? If we went and did that and saw that, wouldn't that be our reaction, right? Well, what do we see from Jonah? What did he do? What is his reaction to God's severe mercy? Jonah 4 starts like this, verses 1 through 3. Jonah was greatly displeased. On the back end of revival, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled. Toward Tarshish. I hate that word, Tarshish. So hard to say. That's why I fled toward there in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. God's mercy, guys. Tonight, God's mercy might be exactly what you need and what I need. That's our final point. God's mercy might be exactly what you need. In a story full of irony about fish swallowing people and yada, 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 a rebellious prophet, this has to be the greatest irony of them all. It seems Jonah doesn't actually understand his very own message. The message he has from God is this, repent, enemies of God, and he will love to show you mercy. But Jonah seems to be missing the common theme in his very own story. Pagan sailors repenting, wicked foreigners repenting, and even their livestock being covered in sackcloth. You catch it, like even their cows, even their animals are getting covered in sackcloth and ash. But not Jonah. Jonah complains. He sits there on a hill, angry, just asking God for the rest of chapter four. Like, this isn't right. Your mercy is too severe. I'm gonna sit here and watch until you decide to destroy this city for what they deserve. He said he knew God would do this. What in the world is going on? Is Jonah deeply racist, nationalistic, unmerciful to his very core? Maybe, probably. But I wanna consider two other ways Jonah could actually be raising an argument against God. Like two ways that I could actually see where maybe Jonah's thoughts are going. First is that Jonah is looking to God as a good judge. Like he, like he knows all about the God of Israel. He's a prophet. He knows that he is a good judge and doesn't understand how he can do this. Think about it. How could a good judge ever let evil slide? A good judge can't. A bad judge all day. But a good ju- judge, no. The, for there to be real mercy, there must be a real crime, right? And no good judge can sweep the crime under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. That would be unjust. But second, Jonah is looking at his enemies from this hill, looking down towards the city of Nineveh and disagrees that they should receive the promises that he and his people have received. He is looking at them and thinking, they do not deserve to sit at the table with me. 
You're telling me that I have to share God's promised kingdom forever with the murderers that threaten my very people. God has made lavish promises to his beloved and to bring wicked people into it would absolutely ruin it. They're not God's chosen. They're murderers, rapists, corrupt warlords. I deserve better than them. These might be fair thoughts to a small mind of a man, but not to this God. This God loves to show mercy and he is allowed to do so whether Jonah or me or you like it or not. What Jonah needed, what we need is a correct view of who God really is and what he really is about. And the great truth is this, that God has way more mercy than you have sin. Let me say that again. God has way more mercy than you have sin. You see, God's mercy has never been made more clear than the person of Jesus Christ. Not a prophet who came with a bad attitude and gave a lousy sermon and tried to flee the presence of God, but God himself in the form of man coming straight for the hearts of the most rebellious people on earth. God's mercy has never been more on display for his enemies than at the cross. Why? Because the cross is like the death sentence in the courtroom of God. Evil is real. The judge must deal with it. And at the cross, he has dealt with it. How? By taking the fatal blow on himself. The sentence that the Ninevite warlord might deserve, he took on himself. Let mercy flow freely at the cross. Why? Because the cross is like a mirror. It shows us exactly where we stand before God, where we can't compare ourselves to the evil around us anymore, but we see God in all of his goodness right in front of us, and we know we are not like him. Evil is real. The judge must deal with it, but it, not just the Ninevite types of sinners. It's not just the Ninevite types that Jesus died for. No, it was the very sin that is in me and you tonight. Comfort addicted, fearful, judgmental me. We don't look at the cross for self-esteem boost, but for mercy. Let mercy flow freely from the cross tonight. Romans 5 says all sinners, which is another way to say all people were indeed enemies before we took God's mercy that before the cross, before we received the mercy of God, we were his enemies. And Jonah missed this. As you finish the really confusing and weird ending to this book, it's very anticlimactic. It doesn't really have a happy ending for Jonah. He just sits there waiting for God to change his mind and destroy his enemies, and he never does. And Jonah missed this incredible fact that we cannot miss tonight, friends. Revival is reserved for God's enemies. Is that us? Was that us? What I know so many of us pray for, the stuff we dream about, the stuff we cry for sometimes, the stuff that keeps us off awake at night, guys, is a Nineveh-type revival in our city. We know God is merciful and we want to see his power unleashed around us, but I'm afraid we are not willing to see that power, that mercy unleashed in us. It was a dude, 
know a lot of you have probably heard this before, named Gypsy Smith. Let me say that again, Gypsy Smith. That's a good name to write down. A lot of my friends are having babies right now, then they need to consider that one, Gypsy Smith. And he was talking like this. He said, what is the key to a revival actually happening? If you want to see what happened in Nineveh happened in your life, in your context, what do you actually need to do? And he said, you get in your prayer closet, you get on your knees, and you draw a circle around yourself, and you beg God for revival in that circle. Is revival on this campus, in this city, actually possible, guys? Absolutely it is. But not before it starts in here. God loves to show mercy. Let's pray for that. Well, Lord, we're here before you tonight. And we are confronted with um, a severe type of mercy. We're seeing a tale of a religious man who had all the acclaim figured out. He had the stage, he had the microphone, he had the title of leader in every circle he went to, and yet he wanted nothing to do with the will of God in his life. And so Lord, it is not my job right now to go around and tell everybody what the will of God in their life is, but we do know this. Your will is to win our hearts tonight, again and again. And so Lord, I pray for Salt Company, Iowa City, that you would never grow us outward before you grow us inward. I pray that all of our pipe dreams, all of our desires, all of our lofty prayers to fill Kinnick Stadium with the glory of God one day would actually start here and now as we plead for mercy before a living God, a God who we were nothing like, a God who actually called us enemies. But it is the same God who hung on a cross, bled for us, died for us, and now calls us friend. And so Lord, I pray that we would be sent out of here. I pray that we would be absolutely set ablaze. But God, your mercy has got to start on this stage right now. And it's got to start in the individual seats. It's got to start by opening our hearts into a posture of thanksgiving. Open our hearts and our hands even, like whatever we can do to get on our face, get on our knees, just cry out to you, Lord. Mercy, God have mercy. Oh, I'm a sinner. Lord, what a great God you are. Delight in us, Lord, as we delight in you. Be pleased with our song tonight. Be pleased with our lives. Remind us of the cross where mercy was made much of and we drink freely. Because God, there will be a day when the work is done. There will be no revivals to be had, but there will be a constant smile for eternity on our faces as we look to mercy himself and the scarred but risen face of the lamb. God help us. God have mercy, amen.